everyone. Welcome. This is Quantum Nurse out of the rabbit hole from stress to bliss. And this is Grace Asagra, your host. Thank you for being with me. And for today, we have a guest and a special guest, a friend of mine, and he is Dr. Tom. And thank you for being here, Dr. Tom. You're and, welcome. And we're going to have a good conversation on what interests um, Tom and what interests me and all the viewers, okay? So let me just uh, remind the viewers that we, I created this podcast so that we could provide holistic methods and support the dementia caregiver so they could have a rewarding life. So we, I like to make this space as a safe space for practitioners, for those who wants to share, as well as to those who want to learn and have a better health, you know, and a good journey. So Tom is both an internist and an integrative medicine specialist. He has practiced for over 25 years. He has worked for corporate medicine for mom and pop not-for-profits, and as independent contractor. He writes articles at least weekly. You can find rough drafts of this at Facebook uh, with drtommd.com. He has a number of other degrees from psychology to English to business. He has a number of different certifications in integrative medicine and is board certified in both integrative medicine and internal medicine. His current interest is in the environmental medicine and how the sociopathic society has sidelined environmental causality of disease. So Tom, my first question is, you've been around for a while, you know, cause we know each other for a long time now before integrative word even became a buzzword, right? So sure. how did a regularly trained physician like you ended up in being an integrative physician? Well, um, that, you know, that's kind of, in my case, I couldn't, you know, I, I don't know that my case would be applicable to how most doctors uh, wind up in integrative medicine but a long story short, I would say that when I went to medical school, uh, the option of going to naturopathic college or osteopathic college or something else was not on the radar. Okay, so in other words, I was already integrative my whole life. So <clears throat> there wouldn't be a place in conventional medicine uh, other than perhaps psychiatry at the time, back when I went to medical school, that would have interested me very much. But uh, psychiatry in the late 1980s, the very late 1980s, decided it was part of mainstream medicine and became focused more or less on psychopharmacology. And so to me, the most interesting thing about uh, psychiatry, which was psychoanalysis and other forms of talk therapies and deep psychotherapies was being thrown by the wayside. So that left me essentially um, not many choices in terms of residency training. So internal medicine is a very straightforward uh, residency training. You're in the hospital, someone's dying in the ICU, you have to put fluids into them, 
there's not a lot of moral consideration or contemplation that is needed. You get people well and you send them home. That's your basic tenet of internal medicine training. Okay, and then you branch out from there. So um, most internists today have become hospitalists because they wanted shift work and they do only hospital medicine and, or they are outpatient doctors just like fam, family practitioners. But to a degree, internal medicine has lost its standing in that sense. It's no longer what it was either. So in your observation, what's going on with our society right now from health to a lot of other things? Do you think it's getting to the point that maybe it's better? Um, no, uh, I think it's, there, are, there are more choices to a degree, particularly if you have money to buy those choices. But I think <clears throat> despite progress that we have made, society, American society, I will make a, a blanket statement that American society in general is a sociopathic society and has been since its inception. And I would have to explain that statement a little bit, perhaps. So I'll go ahead and explain that statement now. First of all, in the origin of life, symbiosis or what we might call cooperation was more important than selection or competition. And this is the way life progresses is that uh, communities and species, even through hard negotiating, form cooperative uh, collections that promote the health of everybody or the existence of everybody and promote balance. The natural promotion over time is one of balance. Okay? Now, throughout history, of course, uh, people have noted that the human condition, what they call human nature sometimes, is one of strife and conflict and greed, but this is not human nature. Human nature is one of cooperation, but the human condition is that we fall off balance and we have a lot of problems because of that. So, so the first point being that cooperation is more important than survival of the fittest. Survival of the fittest was never a, a term that Darwin coined. He never said that. That, that term was invented by social Darwinists in the 1800s in England to justify slavery. So the very notion of life being a competition in a dog-eat-dog -dog kind of world is one that promotes concepts such as slavery and the master-slave dynamic. When America was settled, you had basically a couple different impulses, and of course that came back to the settling of um, South America as well, and all the way back to the 1400s, and you know earlier than that as well. Um, uh, uh, when the first explorers came, there there were basically two factions, and I'll refer people to anything by Wendell Berry as a writer. But he wrote a book a long time ago called *The Unsettling of America*, and what he points out is that you had people that wanted to nurture land and take care of their space, you had people that wanted to conquest. So we've had this dynamic since our settling, or what he called our unsettling, because in his view, with the native peoples here, it was more cohesively and compassionately settled than after you know, Europeans came. So with this settling or unsettling of America, you had this strife between two different forces, one of nurturing and wanting to be part of nature, 
and one of exploitation and wanting to use things for wealth. Um, and this has stayed with us um, forever. This is the way America has been for 400 years and we've had, we had hundreds of years of slavery. We now have the worst distribution of wealth on earth of any nation. So we still have a master-slave dynamic that continues. And you can think of other parallel dichotomies or parallel divisions that go along with this. Okay, so at one point, the nurturers put a great emphasis on community. But over the same period of time, ideas and realities of communities have fallen apart. And what we see is essentially a collective and social narcissism, where it's what's right for me my personal relationship with my God. If I get ahead, it's because I'm one of God's chosen. Okay. Um, we see another division. We could say democracy as a de development versus authoritarianism or dictatorship. And so what we've seen in America, particularly since the era of Ronald Reagan is pushes over and over again towards more authoritarianism, closer to being a dictatorship than being an actual democracy that puts the common good and the good of all first above everything else, rather than making more billionaires. And so what we've developed, particularly over the last 40 years, is a, a wealth governmental alliance to make rich people richer and do what rich people want and take money out of the common good, gut the public infrastructure, gut the pandemic team, gut everything that everyone might take advantage of. And so I guess if I were to put it <clears throat> to extremes, it would be the difference between what we have now, which is the 1% going rapidly towards gated communities and keeping everybody else out, or the more democratic way of doing things, which many countries do better than we do, which is nobody gets to be a billionaire until everyone has shelter, food, a retirement account, ability to travel a little bit, a guaranteed basic income, and no reason to um, have a concern if they happen to be an artist or a scientist and don't want to be a money grubber out there working on Wall Street trying to make millions of dollars. And that would be another dichotomy. And I guess the way I could restate this is, is it going to be government by the people or is it going to be government by wealth? In America, has exported this around the globe. So it's not just America doing this kind of thing. And we see more and more authoritarianism everywhere right now. And what happens is that if you allow the world to be run with the only true motive of greed or everything gets to be bought and so sold, then this translates into everything else. And so in essence, everybody and everything other than the people running the show become a commodity. So everything becomes bought and sold. And that would include, um, you know, uh, and I can call this the master-slave dynamic, or I can call this something that Charles Derber, a sociologist, calls militant capitalism. And if you talk about militant capitalism, in other words, exporting this master-slave dynamic and using a big army to keep things the way you want them, then America's right on top with that. No one can claim as much use of that type of power as we can. If anyone were to doubt that we are a sociopathic society, I can give very, very specific examples of things we have done 
and if we put them, if we imagine a society to be an individual, then only a sociopath would do these things. So the, the problem is, as it relates to the professions, is that the master-slave dynamic, the bought and sold motive, the bought and sold way of functioning, the corporatization of everything, the commoditization of everyone bleeds down. That's what really trickles down. Rich people's money doesn't trickle down to us, but the morality associated with maldistribution of wealth does trickle down. And so that morality influences everything. It influences the professions greatly. And I would say, you know, name any profession, I can tell you how it's being sidetracked away from its original intent because of the corporatization of the world, and particularly of the United States, which continually tries to export its version of militant capitalism. Why don't you then speak about, you know, either the, in the medical field or in the nursing field? Okay. Well, the, the best example of unbridled, the best example to me, before I do that, of how things, how amorality trickles down is the legal profession. Because the legal profession is unregulated. And you have people argue that it's government regulation that's the problem. But the legal profession has no regulation. It's all lawyers deciding what lawyers do. So if a lawyer commits a crime, there's no agency to take his license away. The only way he can lose his license or have any punishment is to be sued, okay, or to be put in jail for an obvious crime. And of course, it will be other lawyers doing that. So there's an inherent conflict of interest. And this has gotten worse over time. We now see lawyers being in droves appointed to federal bench based on ideology and not their legal abilities. Okay, so I just wanna point out that even in an unregulated profession, uh, this, this sociopathic nature of society trickles down. In fact, it's even worse because you don't really have any data. You can't tell how many lawyers are crooks. Now doctors, on the other hand, you can tell how many doctors are crooks. There's a high regulatory aspect to medicine. There's five or six or seven major agencies, including uh, Medicare, which scrutinize doctors very, very well. So doctors and nurses and anyone with a license, anyone with a state license is scrutinized and kept in line through regulation. For example, as a doctor, I can't refer somebody to a specialist and then have that specialist pay me for the referral. That's considered unethical. Okay, but um, <clears throat> this is not what happens when you look at the profession overall, because the profession of nursing, the profession of medicine have become cor corporatized. And particularly in the 1990s, we saw physicians basically sell out because regulation, in fact, made things so complex that physicians needed financial support and corporations started buying up physician, physician practices. And so now a lot of what the doctor does is has nothing to do with the notion of healing, but it has to do with what the doctor's quota needs to be and what the corporate rules are. Now, it doesn't mean that rules are not more in place for a doctor than they are a lawyer. Those rules certainly are more in place for a doctor, but there is inherent corruption 
that occurs because medicine, like nursing and like almost everything else, is part of a system that is sociopathic, that is militantly capitalist. And so <clears throat> I probably need to explain that a little better. First of all, just for future reference, medicine is not a science. This is a big mistake that people make. Medicine is based on applied science. So medicine takes what we know about various sciences, say biology, or say metabolism, or say physiology, and it attempts to help by saying, well, create a drug or create a method to help this specific metabolic problem, then we can help this disease. Unfortunately, with that type of model where you actually don't have a science of health or a science of medicine, but you have applied sciences applied to a human being, you often do not address the human being. And so what you get instead is a more or less piecemeal set of specialties and general medicine, which attempt to literally influence um, specific formulas, so inputs. And the outcomes and the inputs are linear. They are go from A plus B equals C, increase C and you get some more A and B. That's the basic simplistic idea of medicine. This is a science of how do you push things around. Okay, and so what medicine mostly does is manage illness. If you can think of an illness that medicine actually cures, then let's think of one now. I'll just give a pause there. You know, other than if you think that someone has an infection and you put an antibiotic on it or give them an antibiotic and that goes away, you might call that a cure. There are reasons that I would not call that a cure, but we could, we could say, okay, that's a cure. Or if somebody has a vitamin C deficiency and they're getting scurvy and we give them vitamin C, then we can call that a cure because we corrected the nutrition. Or if somebody has a bleeding artery because someone cut them in the leg and their femoral artery is bleeding, then you get a surgeon and you sew it up and they're better. And we can say that's a cure. In fact, that's a heroic, almost a, uh, it's a save. It's a cure and it's a save. Okay, and so these things medicine are, is pretty good at, but that's not most of medicine. Most of medicine is trying to uh, influence an imbalance in the human system, and it tries to do it by addressing only the part it knows about that imbalance. So the problem there is <clears throat> that when you get pharmaceutical companies that now basically have said, along with regular conventional medicine, which for a long time, despite, it get, despite the fact that professors in medicine will deny this, medicine for a long time has said, give me a drug that will cure this. Okay, so when you only have drugs, you only have piecemeal solutions. So medicine, 90% of medicine, what it actually prescribes is giving a drug to influence one part of the problem, often a powerful drug and often a dangerous drug, or cutting something off or sewing something up. And that's pretty much how you can describe medicine. Now, the problem with that is when most of your therapies producing new drugs and you've got 
what we will call big pharma in charge and big pharma has to show a quarterly profit and does all dictating the treatment and the cure if there's ever a cure or the management of the disease are studies that basically see what the better drug is and very little is given to actually what's wrong with the human being what needs to be healed what overall more integrative or holistic system can reset this balance so that the person doesn't need a drug okay just one quick example most type 2 diabetes can be reversed with a nutrient-dense anti-inflammatory diet. And there are doctors, you know, I, you know, I'm not talking about all doctors in terms of everyone being part of the militant capitalism. There's many groups of doctors who realize parts of this or realize all of this and take another method or take another path. So there are doctors that have written very good books on you know, eat a plant-based diet and reverse your diabetes, particularly if you catch it early, particularly if it's before it's fixed and too late. Okay, now here's what I mean by the nature of the sociopathic society and how it applies to medicine. How many doctors in your life, in your experience as a nurse, in your experience with patients, have you ever heard that the first suggestion was, let's reverse your diabetes? None. Okay. And it would be very, very, very rare even now. So you see, you asked me if things have gotten better. Well, they have in the sense that are, there are way more people like me that, than 40 years ago. 40 years ago, it was difficult to do this stuff and you still had to keep a very low radar because somebody was likely to ruin your practice. But that hasn't changed that much, not in corporate medicine. I've worked for many corporations and if I started fixing people, it often was consternation to the primary care doctors and it always got, got me into trouble. And that's even relatively recently, say 10 years ago. Okay, so medicine is sociopathic in the sense that it's sociopathic by collusion. Doctors and the profession turn away from a better way. A better way because number one, the ability to pursue that better way is not funded. The buy and sell system does not fund doctors who spend two hours on a first visit with their patient. And that was the minimum time I spent when I worked for the corporation I worked for as a primary care doctor. And in fact, it was more cost effective. The eight minute visit uh, of the average practice at that time uh, uh, required about 30 patients a day to, to break even for that doctor who got an advance from the corporation. I required 12 patients a day because I spent a lot of time. I charged as much as Medicare would allow for that two hours or two and a half hours. I, I did take a loss, but then I spent a lot of time and had high level charges and I had only one staff person because I didn't, <clears throat> worry about providing ancillary services in order to make money. So I didn't have the salaries and the way I made money was spending time with my patients and it still worked, but the other primary care physicians, their patients started coming to me for problems that would not be addressed by regular medicine. Okay. So in other words, um, you have someone with intractable vertigo without a known cause, you have a good answer. Okay, all the drugs have failed and everything else. Okay, and so 
someone comes to me in one visit, I say, help them in some way, even cure them in one visit or two. And this, rather than creating interest, this not only created furor among the physicians who thought they were losing their quota and losing their patients, but it recreated a conflict between the three CEOs of the company, the one who wanted to promote this stuff, the one that didn't know, and the one that was the head CEO that didn't want to hear anything from his unrest as to what I was doing. And so that was the end of that job. And I will tell you that um, really, really helping people often does not fit in with corporate medicine. Okay, because corporate medicine is interested in how many MRIs have you ordered this month? They won't tell you that because it's illegal, but that's what they are interested in. And how much money do you produce? Okay, so once again, we're back to the same thing. If profit is your main motive, then the situation, the people, the entities, the corporations will conspire to increase profits regardless of other considerations and here we have the same trickle-down sociopathic morality that's affecting everyone else perhaps it doesn't affect medicine as much but it does significantly during this pandemic time is anyone making money sure lots of people are making money if you want to i mean it's it's not a pretty um, um, it's not a pretty answer to that. During the pandemic, um, billionaires have increased their wealth just over about a period of two to three months by about five hundred billion dollars, whereas average people have lost about three trillion dollars so far. So once again, this pattern does not change, okay <clears throat> One tenth of one percent of Americans own 40% of the wealth in this country, 40 to 50%. The, Wal the Walton family, the, the Walmart heirs, the four of them, three or four of them alone own as much wealth as the bottom 40% of Americans. Okay, and we can go on with these types of statistics. 14,000 families actually get ahead when you adjust for real income. And they are the one-tenth of 1% 1 at the top. Their average annual income is $25 million, maybe $30 million, the average, okay, annual income. And that doesn't talk about their investments or anything else. And their taxes are generally way lower to non-existent compared to what you and I pay. And this structure has been implemented since the 1950s. In the 1950s, what we had was the New Deal by Franklin D. Roosevelt to get us out of the Great Depression. And the New Deal meticulously said, we have to distribute wealth. We have to have progressive taxation. So if you made more than X amount of money, say $50 million, anything over $50 million was taxed 70%. If you made more than 100 million, and I'm just throwing, I'm making up these particular figures, but the essence of it is correct. Over $100 million, your taxes were 90%. If you only made $20,000, you didn't pay any taxes. If you only made $50,000, you paid 5%. You made $100,000, paid 10% and so on. Okay, now he did a lot of other things too. He, if you really study, and a book on this if for people that are interested would be The Conscience of a Liberal by Paul Krugman. Paul Krugman is a Nobel laureate economist. 
many Nobel laureate, laureate economists have exposed what's going on in America. Uh, Paul Krugman, Joseph Stiglitz, James Galbraith, and others. But unfortunately, they don't go into politics and they don't run our country. Okay. Uh, the information is out there, though. So if you read that book, you'll find out, well, you know, Roosevelt did some other things. He said, the CEO's salary cannot be more than 100 times that of the worker. He said, until every worker's salary goes up to X. The, the executives do not get a pay raise until every worker's salary goes up to X. So there wasn't just distribution of wealth through progressive taxation. There was distribution of wealth through regulation. And that era from 1950 almost to 1980 was the most prosperous time in America when you had real income. More people got ahead. You had the biggest middle class. Union attendance was two or three times what it is now. Now, in the 50s, there was a group of politicians and others that called themselves movement conservatives, basically of the Republican Party. And uh, not all of the Republican Party, but basically of the Republican Party. And they hated FDR with a vehemence. They hated the New Deal with a vehemence. And they decided right then and there that they were going to start working politically, no matter how long it took, to take us back to pre-Great Depression parameters, which meant concentration of wealth among the wealthy, undermining social programs, and Reagan was the poster child for this. Ronald Reagan was the poster child for this. Ronald Reagan said, basically, you know, we're going to make the and everyone else will be better off. And that was where trickle-down economics really got its, um, its formalization and has been the big lie ever since. Okay, so um, no, uh, there are people making a lot of money during the pandemic. Um, but they are either very, very lucky entrepreneurs, people that played the, the stock market knowing what was coming. And of course, playing the stock market doesn't really do any good for anyone other than the, the individual that's gambling. And then rich people who basically pull the strings. Now, what's happened over that period of time from let's say 1950 until now <clears throat> is that the more power, the, because of maldistribution of wealth, the more power that the wealthy get, buy and sell our politics. And the more they lobby and the more politicians get money from the wealthy. And study after study has demonstrated that politicians listen to the concerns of the wealthy. All politicians, some less, some more. Okay, maybe you have less listening to the wealthy among Democrats, but they still do because they're part of the same dysfunctional sociopathic system. This is how it works. If you don't raise enough money to get reelected, you don't get reelected. And your rich donors, particularly now after Citizens United by the Supreme Court, after that decision, rich donors have more power and more say. And then they influence the laws. So how does this apply to medicine? Well, up until the 1940s, we were way more concerned about carcinogenicity of what we put in our food and into our environment than we were after that. You know, after the 1940s, business got a lot of the laws reversed and said, we want a special counsel to look at the safety issues and the standard, once again, under Ronald Reagan in 1980, the standard became, you have to weigh any risk of an industrial chemical or anything else against 
the benefit. And if the benefit happens to be profit, then that can be a reason that the benefit outweighs the risk. I'm not making this stuff up. You cannot make this stuff up. Okay. This is all now a, a good book to understand that would be a brand new book called Sensitives. Um, and this book, uh, some of this, I'm not going to have the authors off the top of my head, but you can look it up online. Just go to the Sensitives Amazon and you'll get the book. And this is about people that are a hidden group almost who have a hidden disease almost, which is what we used to call multiple chemical sensitivity. Okay. And after, for a lot of individuals, a lot, perhaps 30% of our population, once you're exposed to enough toxicity, you become sensitive to everything. And there's all sorts of cross reactivity and people get very ill. They won't be diagnosed by medicine. They're considered to have psychological problems often because the doctors just don't know what to do. And they're out there on their own suffering with their own community, not getting a lot of help. And that's even assuming that there is help because if we are gonna help these people, we have to figure out the, how to reverse the ravages of an environment which is completely toxic compared to what it should be. We have 80,000 pesticides and industrial chemicals on the market. Now, what would you guess in terms of how many have been adequately tested for human safety out of 80,000? Not a lot. One, seven, 17, 10 plus seven, not 10,000, mm -hmm. 17. And in terms of testing these chemicals for toxicity in children, one out of 80,000 has been adequately tested. Businesses since cigarettes. In 1936, it was well known that cigarettes were causing lung cancer. That information was suppressed. It was suppressed until, until the lawsuits in the 1990s. There was plenty of scientific data information, but you know, the cigarette companies were a powerful lobbying agency, number one. Politicians were loath to go around after these companies and create laws that would force them to reveal their data. And so until there were big lawsuits, nothing happened. So this is how many years, 50 years of death and destruction in the name of profit. And business and government has done this with industrial chemicals as well. We're at least 20 years behind the European Union on a precautionary rule, which says you can't put it into the environment and expose people massively until you prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's safe. We don't do that. We did do that up until 1940. That was the rule up until 1940. But uh, along with, it's funny how things go together because along with movement conservatism arose this idea of deregulating everything so that profit mongers can have their way. And enough profit outweighs the risk of causing cancer in people. So the medical profession, uh, okay, just to make the point to people out there, how many doctors, and you're in integrative medicine, you're in a holistic medicine, you know people like me, but how many people have you ever heard talk like me? No, <laughs> not, not a lot either. There's yeah. more that says they're integrative, but still, yeah. So this is what I found as well, is that I have a lot of colleagues that I like, um, and they're very uh, purist. Well, not a lot, but I have a, a good handful colleagues I really like who are very deep into integrative medicine or homeopathy or, or whatnot, 
But what occurred to me quite some time ago is that medicine, the profession of medicine is guilty by collusion. And this has been for a long, long time. Okay. How many doctors, you know, every doctor, I mean, 90% of doctors should be part of, you know, a social activist movement and a movement against environmental destruction, a movement against um, uh, the, the big pharma cr crimes that occur, a movement against um, corporatization of medicine, a movement against hurting people, a movement against children in cages. Now, some doctors are, and there are some movements, you know, positions for ethical concerns and things like this, but it's a very tiny percentage of doctors that have any interest in this whatsoever. And this gets to a bigger picture. Uh, and the bigger picture is this is, goes back to, this is part of our society. Our society is extremely narcissistic. Our, each generation has become more narcissistic than the last generation. My generation was pretty narcissistic because we were, I, I was right after the ba baby boomers. Uh, now, on the one hand, the baby boomers brought us, helped with the civil rights, civil rights movement, uh, uh, and brought us feminism and a whole lot of good things and a whole lot of bad things, a whole lot of good things. But it was a, it was a, it was not like the community-oriented, one for all and all for one type of generation. A little less, and the next generation a little less, and the next generation a little less. Part of what has influenced that is cell phones and the digital world and Facebook and everything else. If you have people that spend seven hours a day on the computer on Facebook and have it attached to their phone and it wakes them up at night, the part of their brain that has to do with aggression and fight flight grows. The, the parts of the amygdala grow. Parts of the parts of the brain that you don't want to grow, grow. And so this is why you see teenagers sitting on the couch texting each other when they're sitting next to each other because having eye contact and dealing with emotions is too difficult. So our technology itself which we never use a precautionary rule with because profit is more important, is actually promoting narcissism within a sociopathic society. And when you promote narcissism within a sociopathic society, you get more sociopathic. And a key thing that psychologists, some psychologists and some psychiatrists have realized this, but they have not stated it as a group and it is not, not generally in the awareness, which is that much psychopathology, much mental illness is produced by a mentally ill society, not by the individual. But everybody wants to treat the individual as if it's just their problem. And it's funny how things go together. As we went from prior to 1940s saying, it's gotta be safe before you put it in the food. And we went to the profit can outweigh the risk. If there's enough profit, it benefits society, trickle down once again. So it outweighs the risk. Okay, well, the same thing has happened with psychology. Instead of saying we have to fix the society, we say we have to fix the individual. And what the businesses did is they displaced risk management onto the individual. So now it was the individual's responsibility to buy a new device to monitor their pulse or buy a new device to see if they've got poisons in their food. It was all on you to spend more money in a whole new industry that came up to try to protect you from the toxicities that industry created in the first place. 